We're going to go right into it. Acts chapter 22, beginning with verse 30. We read that the next day, because the commander wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, Acts 22 closes with the commander, a man named Claudius, in a rather tough spot. After rescuing Paul from a Jewish mob, determined to kill him. Claudius is hoping to ascertain as to what this man has done to so incite this mob. To figure it out, he allows Paul the opportunity to speak to the crowd of onlookers. He's hoping that in allowing Paul to speak, he could gain some clues. But Paul, we're told, spoke to the mob in Hebrew instead of Greek, meaning poor Claudius had no idea still what the big hubbub was about which is why he decides following that encounter and that event to have Paul examined under scourging. And yet this plan also very quickly backfired on Claudius when he came to the realization that such techniques would have come at personal peril because Paul was a Roman citizen. Not only was it illegal to have him bound, but to have him scourged without charge would have, well, been a dangerous thing for Claudius himself. So now, not only is, is, not only is Claudius still in the dark, but he's in a weird position because he needs to come up with a charge, ASAP, in order to justify the incarceration of Paul, a Roman citizen. His solution, bring Paul before the Sanhedrin, which was a 71-member ruling body there in Israel, hoping that the exchange between Paul and these religious legal rulers could now finally shed a little light to him what the big deal was about. Well, we're told, verse 1, chapter 23, that Paul, standing before these men, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I love the way that Luke sets the scene. We're told Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said. This phrase, looking earnestly. It's the Greek word atenizo, meaning to fix the eyes upon. Like this is the gaze, the, the gaze Paul's giving these men. He enters the room. It's the gaze that you would get from Dirty Harry before hearing the famous words, go ahead, make my day. He's not intimidated. He, he's, he's ready to tango. Now, don't forget Paul had been a Pharisee himself and a member of this very Jewish Sanhedrin. And while he knew their power and he knew their conniving, you know, that they had orchestrated Jesus' execution and even sanctioned Stephen's stoning, Paul wanted them to know right from the beginning, I'm not intimidated by you at all. I can imagine how then the strength, the conviction, of Paul's opening line would have reverberated throughout the room. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Not only is Paul affirming the sincerity of his actions. I, I, I'm guilty of no crime. I'm an innocent man. He's letting this ruling body know that the true judge, the real judge of Israel, had already ruled on the case 
and had declared that Paul was innocent of any wrongdoing. Men and brethren, I don't know why I'm standing here. God's already ruled, and guess what? I'm innocent. Well, we're told, verse 2, that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Like, it's clear here that Paul has kind of a very low tolerance, a low threshold for blatant, obvious hypocrisy. And he wants this high priest to know that while he might be standing in judgment of others, there would come a day that he would stand in judgment before God. Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. Literally, it's, it's a whited wall, which was a reference to a Jewish custom of whitewashing the entrances of sepulchers as a warning of defilement to anyone that would touch them. On the way to Jerusalem, you would be passing a lot of graveyards. If you came in contact with the dead, that would make you unclean, which was a bummer because then you'd get to the temple, you couldn't worship, you'd have to go through all this cleansing process. So they would wipe the walls of tombs so people could see them very clearly. So Paul's saying, you wanna be seen as being pure, but if we just pull back the layer, you're nothing but dead men. It's as though he's saying that their outward appearance only existed to mask an inward corruption. And then to validate this accusation, a heavy accusation of hypocrisy, Paul immediately provides an example of hypocrisy. He says, for you sit to judge me according to the law, but you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul is highlighting the obvious double standard and he's making it clear that no justice would be found in this courtroom. It's though he's saying, how can you be trusted to judge me according to the law when you're not even willing to treat me according to the law? Well, those who stood by him, verse 4, said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's a few thoughts as to what's happening. Some view Paul's response here as being kind of a sort of pseudo-apology. Like they point to the exchange here as being evidence that Paul immediately realized that maybe he overreacted a little bit. You know, he got struck in the face and he kind of lashed out that he kind of immediately, you know, you say something in the moment and you immediately are trying to pull it back in and you realize maybe you just kind of overstepped your bounds. Like some see what's happening here as Paul offering a, an apology. Okay, I overreacted. And then they'll justify this position by saying, you know, Jesus stood before this same group of people and we're told he was struck, but he, not, he didn't open his mouth. He said not a word. Now, my problem with that is that Paul's not Jesus, and you see how you react in getting struck in the face. I think only Jesus is the one that's going to be quiet with that. I know I'm not. If you're like, I think it was Paul overreacted, then we'll slap you and see how you feel about it. There are those that see it as, a, as an apology. There are others that see his response here as kind of an admission maybe of an honest mistake. They point to the exchange as maybe being evidence that if Paul had known Ananias was the high priest, he would never have spoken the way that he had. 
some have theorized that it, it could be that Paul, because we know that he had a chronic eye problem, didn't know that the person who had ordered him to be struck was the high priest because he couldn't see that far. And so when they're like, you're speaking like this to the high priest, that Paul's like, oh, I, I can't see that far. I didn't know that it was the high priest that gave this particular order. Others kind of present a theory that um, because of the political environment, um, if you go back and you, and you start to research who was high priest and when, um, it was like, it was a hot potato being high priest. It could very well be Paul just didn't know Ananias was the high priest at this point in time. And so he's kind of offering like, oh, sorry, it's an honest mistake. I just didn't even know that he was the high priest or I would have never said this. I, however, I don't, I don't think either of those two are what's happening here. I, and maybe it's just the fact that I am, um, I like to see things differently and, and I'm a sarcastic person myself that, um, that I see Paul's response here as really being a sarcastic way of further validating his previous point. Like, I think Paul here, in his response, he's emphasizing the clear hypocrisy of the situation by making the point that he didn't know Ananias was the high priest because clearly no high priest would have ever acted in such a deplorable way. I like to think Paul's being sarcastic here. It doesn't matter either way. Now, I do think as we continue into the chapter, that one of the mistakes that scholars make by attempting to explain Paul's approach here to the Sanhedrin is to assume something that, that I think isn't exactly correct. And, and that is the assumption that Paul wanted to be there. Like, so, like a lot of scholars in trying to explain the whole situation, how all this unfolds, they, they enter it by thinking Paul cared. Like he actually wanted to be there. I, I don't think so. Personally, I believe that while Paul may have desired to preach the gospel to the Jews, it had never been his goal or desire to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin. He knew these men, and he's not standing there because he even requested to do so, is he? Claudius is the one that took him and put him and called the meeting. I think Paul knew right from the beginning that he was going to get nowhere with this group of men, a group of men he knew very, very well. And it only took about 30 seconds to have this belief validated. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived, knowing this is going to go nowhere, that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisee, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, knowing that his time before these men had already turned volatile, Paul is looking for a way out. He's really shrewd. He's a, he's a tactician. To do this, to get out of the scene, he's going to employ the command and conquer technique. He's going to divide his adversary into two camps, pit them against each other, and find a way out. We're told that perceiving that one part of the Sanhedrin was Sadducee, the other Pharisee, two different political factions, the liberals and the conservatives, the Democrats and the Republicans, Paul then attributes all of the outrage that the people had had towards him as being a direct result of a theological position he happened to share with the Pharisees. And that is, quote, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, you should know the reason that the tactic, as we're about to see, proved to be an effective strategy 
is that while the Pharisees believed in the miraculous, the the physical resurrection, the future resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees who rejected the miraculous vehemently opposed the idea of a future resurrection. So when he said this, verse 7, as he anticipated, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, divide and conquer. For Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and no angels and no spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. So there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose. So the lawyers for the Pharisees arose and protested, saying concerning Paul, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken, which is a dig at the Sadducees, let us not fight against God. Then there arose a great dissension, So much so that the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. Total epic waste of time. Now before we get to verse 11, I think it's important to first take a moment and and address where Paul might have been emotionally, spiritually, as he's being returned to the barracks. Well, this had not been the first time that Paul had ticked off a group of Jews. He kind of had a knack for it, really. And though this is not the first time that group of Jews wanted to kill him, he also had a knack for inciting people to have violence towards him. Nor was it the first time that he had spent a night in jail, uncertain about his fate. I am of the opinion that Paul, in this moment, finds himself in the darkest place in his Christian life. We've mentioned it before. I'll quickly rehash concept that, that we're employing for these final few chapters. That back in Acts 19, months earlier, while Paul was in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit told him to go to Rome. However, Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem first. It's not what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. And over and over and over again, as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, he ignores the Spirit's continued warnings, as well as his trusted friend's passionate pleadings, that he forego this plan. Go to Rome. Don't go to Jerusalem. Nothing good will happen. Paul goes anyway. And it doesn't take long for his experience in this city to not go at all in any way like he had hoped. It's my conviction that as Paul sat in this cell, he knew that he had made, it became very clear that he had made a tragic misstep, that he had been resisting the Spirit's leadings Then it all became clear, why didn't I just go to Rome? Why am I here? Paul knew that that he had been disobedient. He should have gone to Rome. I'm confident that as Paul sat in this dark cell, his heart was full of doubt and very possibly fear. And this is why, for the first time, Paul is sitting in a cell of his own making, and not one of the Spirit's leading. And I can imagine, and I think 
for those of us who've blown it, we know all too well, we can sympathize that in this moment of failure and sitting in this dampened cell that Paul was wondering, the thoughts were flooding his mind if he had irreparably marred God's plan. Have you ever wondered that? You totally blow it. You screw up. You know it. You've acted contrary to what God had for your life. You've acted contrary to how God was leading your life. You've acted contrary to the word of God. You've been in disobedience, and you know it. And now you're reaping the consequences. You're in a cell of your own making. In those moments, don't you think the same thing? Haven't the thoughts crossed your mind? God must be through with me. He's done. I did it. This is it. I'm sure Paul has been thinking, I've messed it all up. Would God now have any use for me? I'm sure he's thinking, would I ever make it to Rome? And it's with these thoughts swirling in his head and more importantly, his heart. As he's sitting in this cell in this barrack. That we're told, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Notice the first words out of Jesus' mouth. And note, it's the following night. A whole night passed. The following night. Jesus, the first words, Be of good cheer, Paul. Literally, Jesus is not suggesting that Paul be of good cheer. He's commanding him. It's a command. It's a directive. Be of good cheer. Literally, Jesus is telling Paul as he's sitting in his cell, dude, be encouraged. Wait a second. Like, what was there that Paul could possibly be encouraged about? He's sitting in a cell of his own making. He'd messed up. He'd failed. And yet, even then, as we're about to see, there were things that Paul could, in his failure, take courage in, be encouraged by. Three realities from this verse that I see that you and I as well can be encouraged by in the midst of our own failure, which I find to be very relevant because... And I hate to break it to you, you fail often. So do I. So dealing with failure is kind of an important thing. Finding out how Jesus deals with our failure is an important thing because we're really, really good at failing. Amen? Amen. First thing I notice is that Paul could be encouraged that even in his failure, the Lord stood by him. I consider that for a moment. We're not told that the Lord came to Paul, are we? That the Lord appeared to Paul. No, we're told that the Lord stood by Paul. It's interesting, but the Greek structure of this verse does not convey the idea that the presence of the Lord had come to Paul to meet him in his time of failure. But that while in the midst of his failure, Paul became more aware of the presence of the Lord standing by him. Like, let me say it another way. The activity of the verse does not imply that Jesus came to stand by Paul, but that Paul came to a renewed 
awareness that Jesus had been standing by him all along. Jesus had gone nowhere. And why would this need to be a healthy exhortation? Sadly, and I think as many of us can relate, it would seem overwhelmed by his failure that Paul, like many of us, had lost sight of incredible, powerful, awesome reality. And that is that Jesus never runs from us. He never leaves us. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus promised his followers, I am with you always. I love, you know, we talk about the I am statements of God. That's one never talked about. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. No matter what comes, hell or high water, I'm with you. Again, in Hebrews 13, verse five, Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Friend, under the weight of failure, this morning, I want you to do something right from the beginning. If you've come here weighted down, bummed out, you feel as though you're held captive by your own insufficiency, your own inadequacy, your own inability to do it. Jesus does so much for me and I can't even dadgum it. In this moment, May you open your eyes and see Jesus. I mean it. While all others may have left you to endure the cell of your own making, you are alone. No, not so. For Jesus has not left you, and he never will. Jesus has not run from you. Jesus has not turned his back on you. He's not even disappointed in you. Instead, will you see? Will you open your eyes and see that Jesus right now is standing by you? He has not gone anywhere. Do you see him? For if you would set your eyes on Jesus, if you would open your eyes and see your Savior, you know what you would see? You would see the permanent scars that bear your lasting forgiveness. And this should serve to remind you that even in failure, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be of good cheer. I'm standing right here. You're not alone and your failures have already been paid for. The second thing that I take courage in and my failure from this passage is that Paul could be encouraged that in light of his failure, God's grace was still sufficient. I think the most powerful part of the entire exchange was that first moment when Paul heard his name roll off the tongue of Jesus. Like, Like not only does this signify a personal relationship that Jesus would come and use his name, Paul, Joe, Brian, Samantha, Zach. But the sound, that sound, maybe I'm going too far with this, but but I can imagine the flood of emotion that had to well up in his heart producing tears that would flow from his eyes to hear Jesus utter the name Paul. You know, if you recall, 
while on the road to Damascus in full and complete rebellion against the Spirit's conviction, Jesus appeared, right? And said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now fast forward the scene, some 25 years. And where is Paul? What do we see? He's once again been acting contrary to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's messed up. And yet, in this instance, Jesus appears and delivers a dramatically different message, right? It's not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But instead, it's Paul. He turned. Be of good cheer. Upon hearing the sound of his name, there is no doubt in my mind, there were two thoughts that immediately came to his mind, two significant realities that were communicated in hearing Jesus call him Paul. First, it was the reality that God no longer knew him as Saul. He was no longer Saul. He was Paul. The old man was dead. He was a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things had passed away. All things were new. He heard Jesus not refer to him as Saul, but instead this new identity, Paul. I know you failed, but it's okay. You're not that guy anymore. He's reminding him of his new identity, the identity he has in Christ, that he's seen by God as being righteous, being forgiven, being set free. He no longer has to feel the condemnation of being Saul, for he's Paul. You know, the other reality, hearing that name, is that if Jesus' grace had proved sufficient then, on that road to Damascus, his grace could still prove sufficient now. This morning, if you've stepped in it, and or made a mess of it. If you've fallen short, failed. If you've proved that you're actually a very able sinner, understand Jesus' first words never convey disbelief. <laughs> He's not surprised. He's not disappointed. He doesn't see you in your failure and think, man, I died for him on the cross and he just can't get his act together. No. Like instead, Jesus speaks through the darkness to a heart mired in self-condemnation with these words. Be of good cheer. It's okay. Be of good cheer. Buck up. Cheer up. It's all right. It's okay. We all can revert back to childhood memories, right? Where we totally mess up. We do something bad. And we know dad's coming. And there's that whole experience, right? Of the anticipation of I'm going to get it. This is going to end badly. There's no way I'm wiggling out of this. To then have dad put his arm around you and say, it's okay. <gasps> right? In that moment, you know what in the midst of failure people don't need? Like, you know what the world doesn't need to hear 
when faced with their own shortcoming, Paul didn't need Jesus to appear and give him the law, which would have only provided him a deeper understanding of his own failure, his own shortcoming. You know, there's no cheer in judgment, only greater guilt. Paul didn't need to be judged. He knew he was guilty. He didn't need to be expounded upon as to how badly he had failed. He already knew it. He didn't need the law. You know what else he didn't need? He didn't need religion, which would have only provided him with an insufficient mechanism now to atone for his shortcomings. You know, there's no cheer and penance, only greater inadequacy. You know, the thing that Paul needed and the only thing that can truly provide cheer to a person in the midst of failure is a greater understanding that God's grace still proves sufficient. What Paul needed most in the moment of failure was not the judgment of others. I told you so. Come on. Been warning you. You're getting what you deserve doesn't need that. Nor did he need a set of penances by which now he could seek to prove himself again. Hey, you failed. But now here, A, B, C, and D, that's the fast track. You got to earn everybody's approval back, earn everybody's favor. You got to make it right. No. What Paul needed in this moment was one thing and one thing alone, the only thing that has the power to change life, God's amazing grace. Pastor Tully and Chavajan, he said, I love this. Believe it or not, Christianity is not about good people getting better. If anything, it is the good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. And I think that's the truth. Understand, the amazing thing about grace is that grace scales to the highest mountain and it yells out, it declares, it screams for all the world to hear that your failures play no role in God's favor. Zip, zilch, nada, zero. Your failures don't lessen God's love for you, nor does your obedience deepen it. God's love is not contingent upon you whatsoever. It's completely based in him and the work that he did on the cross. What the failed need, what you and I need, more than anything else in that moment where we've blown it, is a fresh sense of God's love unlocked by a renewed understanding of of God's grace. And you know how people are supposed to experience that? By you. How do you handle people who have failed? How do you handle people that have failed you? People that have let you down? How do you handle your kids in the moment of failure? Listen, if it's God's grace that gets us to heaven, it's going to be God's grace that gets your three-year-old to four. I'm speaking personally from that. It's God's grace. It's not the law and it's not religion. It's grace. It's not earning it. It's not being judged by it. It's God's grace. God's grace, I'll say it again, 
My failures play no role in God's favor. And man, when you get that, it changes the world. It changed my life. You know, the third thing that I can take encouragement in the midst of failure, Paul, he could be encouraged that in spite of his failure, Jesus still had a plan for his life. Like in light of his grace, I want you to know, Jesus is not afraid of your failure. Like, I'll say that again. Jesus is not afraid of your failures. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that it's often through your failure that Jesus uses it as like an incredible opportunity, that Jesus can take our failures and teach us about his love. He can take our failures and deepen our understanding of his grace. He can take our failures and grow and mature our faith. He can even use our failures to demonstrate his power to the world that he can work in spite of us morons and not because of us. Jesus uses our failure. As we've mentioned, Jesus has this uncanny ability to be able to route our path to his ultimate destination even when we've taken a misguided detour. Imagine the incredible joy that swelled up in Paul's heart that moment he heard Jesus promise that even with everything that had happened, he would bear witness of him in Rome. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul would write, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What this means is that in your failure, you can be encouraged with the knowledge that Jesus has promised. He staked his reputation on the reality that for those who love him, he will work for the good all things. In the Greek, all things literally means all things, everything, even you messing up, even your failure that he can take your failure and work to the good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes, something good. Before we continue, I think it's important that we consider for a moment what Jesus doesn't do in Paul's situation. Like, think about the scene. I mean, like, try to get yourself back in the moment. You're Paul, in a cell of your own making, Worried you may have caused irreparable damage, harm, to God's plan for your life. Then, out of the blue, two nights later, Jesus reveals himself. And he encourages you. Be of good courage. I'm right there with you. I'm standing with you, Paul. I haven't gone anywhere. My grace is still sufficient. It was when you were Saul, it still is now. Here in this dynamic, I'm gonna send you to Rome. My plan for you hasn't been derailed. So you're Paul, that's pretty encouraging, right? I mean, Jesus has your attention. Now, what would you naturally be expecting to follow this awesome exhortation? Like, like what would you, if you're Paul, and you've read the book of Acts, what would you be expecting? I know what I would be expecting. I'd be bracing myself for the earthquake. Like, I, like that time in Philippi, when I was also in a cell, 
And in the midnight hour, I mean, it was a rock and roll service. The earthquake, the doors opened, the chains fell off. I was free, baby. All right, I'm going to Rome. You know, if not the earthquake, I'm at least, I got my eye out for the angel. You know, sent for the jailbreak. All right, I heard Peter did this teleporting thing and he walked through. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this. All right, earthquake, angel, either way, it's all good. But what are you expecting? You're expecting to be freed, aren't you? And yet, not only was Paul not freed, but his situation was about to take another terrible turn for the worse. You're not freed, and it gets worse. Verse 12, when it was day. So all night, you're right. Where's that earthquake? Every little, it's coming. It, no, it's not. A little bit of a light. It's the, no, it's not. It's not the angel. Not happening. It's, it's day. And some of the Jews have banded together, bound themselves under an oath, saying that neither would they eat nor drink till they had killed you. That, that's a bummer. And there were 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that Paul be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him because we're ready to kill him before he even comes near. So Paul's sister's son. Wait, what? Yeah, Paul had a nephew. This is the only mention of him. He hears of their ambush, and he goes, he enters the barracks, and he tells Paul. So Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So we took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him, asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. So the commander took him by the hand, went aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And so Paul's nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to make, uh, we're going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So Claudius called for two centurions. He said, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and go to Caesarea about the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now, it would appear from the text that Claudius's maybe initial plan had always been to keep Paul in Jerusalem until he could have figured out an appropriate resolution to the situation. However, now that this assassination plot has been hatched by the Jews, they're determined to kill Paul. And since Paul is a Roman citizen, by which Claudius is charged to protect. Paul being assassinated would have been very bad for all people involved, especially Claudius. He now rightly concludes that he's got to get Paul out of Jerusalem. It's not safe for him to stay there. So the plan, we're told, was to bring Paul safely to Felix, the governor, who was residing in the coastal city of Caesarea. To ensure Paul's safety, 
Look at this. Claudius prepare, prepares a detail of 470 trained Roman soldiers. 200 footmen, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, saying, take this man to Felix, leave in the middle of the night, and don't let a hair of his head be harmed. Bummer for the 40 assassins, because they're not getting through that group. And they've made this oath to neither eat nor drink. wonder how long they're going to really hold strong to that particular promise. Now, in conclusion, I want to address this question because I think it demands our examination. And that is, why did Jesus leave Paul in his cell? Why leave Paul incarcerated at all? I think there are two reasons. A practical one and, and kind of a universal one. First, in a practical sense, I can't help but consider the reason Paul was left in this cell when he had been freed from others boiled down to the reality that this was a different cell. It was not one of the Spirit's leading. It was one of Paul's own making. You know, the reality is that while Jesus can and he does work in spite of our mistakes, and that is, that is his grace, he'll often do so using the natural consequences of our mistakes. You messed up. There are consequences. But what's awesome is that Jesus is like, yeah, I'll work through them. I have a plan. Be encouraged. Yeah, you're grounded, but that's okay. I'll still work. I, you still have my love. You still have my favor. I'm still with you. I'm going to work it all out, but you're going to stay in that cell. You're going to stay incarcerated. I, you're going to testify of me before kings, before Caesar himself. You're going to go to Rome, but it's, this journey is going to look much differently than it would have if you had just obeyed me to begin with. Going from Ephesus to Rome would have looked different than now going from, but that was your choice. But I'll work through it. Though Paul's detour through Jerusalem would not change his ultimate destination, he would still make it to Rome. His disobedience, and this is important, it still had an impact on the journey itself. As a consequence of his poor choices, Paul would make the journey as a prisoner, which, as we'll see, will bring with it its fair share of complications and difficulties. So in a very practical sense, the reason he's left in the cell, that was the natural consequence. However, in a universal sense, I think it should also be pointed out that the reason Jesus left Paul in his cell is that Jesus is often, this is important, He's often more interested in helping us through our circumstances than he is with providing a means of escape. Forget about what type of cell it is. It's just a cell. Why did he free Paul from Philippi, but he leaves him in, in this jail cell here in Jerusalem? Why? Because he does that. There's no promise that he's going to free you at all. He never does. He actually promises the contrary, that our road following him is a narrow one that's more difficult to follow, to transverse. Sometime we're still in this cell because Jesus is more interested in using it to help us through it, to teach us, 
to mold us, to shape us, as difficult as it is. Paul was left in this cell because Jesus is often more interested in helping us through these things than providing a means of escape. Sometimes he provides a means of escape, but not always. Like, what makes this passage so important is that while Paul may have remained in prison, a prison like many of you find yourself, we see here something awesome. That is the fact that Jesus will help us endure. And how is it that Jesus helps us endure? What did Jesus provide Paul in the midst of his trying circumstances? He didn't jailbreak, but what did he give Paul? His word. Jesus came, didn't kick open the prison door, didn't lead him down and out, he gave him his word. You're in a prison cell. Hey, be, be, be of good cheer here. Here's my word. And what, what did Jesus' word provide the person in the cell? His word reminded Paul that he wasn't alone. And if you're in a cell of your own making or not, Jesus speaks to you through his word, reminding you to be encouraged that you're not alone. He's with you and he's been through worse that he's wanting to help you, that he encourages you. His word also encouraged Paul that God's grace was sufficient. And Jesus' word constantly reminds us of that, doesn't it? But his word also gave Paul a promise. God's word reminds us that we're not alone. God's word reminds us that his grace is sufficient. And God's word reminds us that, hey, I got it. I'll work all things for the good, for those who love me, those who called according to my purposes, even your failures. I got it. I'll work it. It's going to be tough. I've never promised it would be easy. But there's a destination you're still going to reach. Paul, in the midst of failure, but Jesus had a word. And this morning, he has a word for you as well. And so, Father,